Good morning. Please open your Bibles to 3 John. And when you find that, please stand with me so we can read God's Word. 3 John. We're going to read the whole letter. All 14 or 15 verses, depending upon which Bible you're reading. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health, just as your soul prospers. For I was very glad when brethren came and testified to your truth. That is how you are walking in truth. I have no greater joy than this, to hear of my children walking in the truth. Beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, and especially when they are strangers. And they have testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. For they went out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore we ought to support such men, so that we may be fellow workers with the truth. I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. For this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds, which he does, unjustly accusing us with wicked words, and not satisfied with this, he himself does not receive the brethren either. And he forbids those who desire to do so and puts them out of the church. Beloved, do not imitate what is evil, but what is good. The one who does good is of God. The one who does evil has not seen God. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. I had many things to write to you, but I am not willing to write them to you with pen and ink. But I hope to see you shortly, and we will speak face to face. Peace be to you. The friends greet you. Greet the friends by name. And Lord God, we thank you for your word this day. We thank you that you speak through it, that it is completely true and without error, and that you want to do a great work in our hearts and in our lives and in our families and in this church as a result of us being here today, worshiping you, and now listening to your word. And so, Lord, we commit this time to you, and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, you know, we're in week three of a three-week series entitled Living the Truth. Now, next week is Youth Sunday. The following week, on September 14th, we're going to begin a verse-by-verse study of the Gospel of Matthew. That should take us three or four years. (laughs) Now, two weeks ago, we looked at Luke chapter 15 in the context of the lost and found. And we saw that God cares greatly for people who are lost, that he goes to great lengths to save them, and that there is great rejoicing in heaven when someone comes to know Jesus, when someone comes to faith in Christ, and that God's concern must be our concern as it relates to our attitudes towards people and towards our interactions with them as we seek to live and to share the truth of the gospel. That week we put up the cross, this conspicuous cross with nails in in it and uh, and pieces of paper that contain the names of people that we know that 
do not yet know Jesus. And we're praying for them. We're going to keep this cross up through Thanksgiving. We're going to pray, and we're also going to add names. Feel free to add names as uh, time goes on. But don't just put them up there and forget all about it. Seek to live and to share the message of the gospel with them that they might know Christ. So last week, we looked at 2 John and the idea of discerning truth from error, not not putting the welcome mat out for false teachers in our homes and in the church. Now, Pontius Pilate's cynical question to Jesus, you know, what is truth, reflects a viewpoint that's common today, that many people view the concept of truth with skepticism. They believe the lie that there's no such thing as objective truth. And they see one's view of truth as a matter of of personal uh, taste, like one's taste in art or music or, or literature or politics. It's whatever you prefer. But it's tough to, to argue with God's word lived out in daily life. God's truth lived out. And today we're looking at 3 John and we're going to see the effects of living the truth of the gospel consistently. Now, consistency is something we look for in other people. Your favorite restaurant is probably your favorite because they consistently serve up food you like at a price you like. So you keep going. Athletes, we just watched the Olympics for um, a couple weeks. Athletes need to be able to perform consistently at a high level in order to stay on the first team, in order to win, in order to compete at a high level and to keep their spot. Workers. Workers are going to have trouble keeping a job if they cannot consistently do what they're being paid to do. Marriages and families, they don't work very well if there is not consistency of love and care and affection. Churches don't remain healthy unless there is consistency in the lives of the leadership and the people and that there is genuine concern for one another. And then there's the tooth fairy. I don't know what your views on that are, but uh, I definitely have my opinions. Um, But I'll I'll just say this. I don't think he knows our address. I don't think the tooth fairy knows where we live. I mean, Ariana lost a tooth about a week ago and still nothing. He's uh, just to say it this way, in, in our family, that particular entity that gives a gift when a tooth is lost is not very consistent. Um, Consistency is important. But few want to acknowledge absolute truth, but few can deny that consistency matters, that your track record matters, that who you are as a person on a day-in, day-out basis matters. How you live affects everything. And 3 John shows us three examples of consistent living. Three people, three portraits, three examples. Let's look at the first. The first is Gaius, and this is uh, the person to whom the letter was written. In verse 1, John calls him beloved. He calls him beloved four times in this small letter, in verse 1, in verse 2, in verse 5, in verse 11. Beloved means dear. It's from the root of agape, agape love, unselfish love. Beloved, it's a very uh, close and endearing term. He calls him beloved, and John calls himself, once again, the elder. The elder. It suggests his seniority. The word is the same word you use 
for the, the, the office of elder in a local church, presbyteros, but it means old man. And John probably was well into his 90s at this point, at least in his late 80s. He was an old man, but also he had authority as an eyewitness of the life of Christ, of the last living apostle. He says, uh, the, the elder to the beloved whom I love in truth. He, he shows that uh, his love for him is genuine and in accord with God's truth. And in verse 2, he says this, I pray, beloved, I pray that in all respects you may prosper and be in good health. That's a good prayer that you wish someone well, that you desire for them to prosper and be in good health, just as their soul prospers and is in good health. So he expresses his hope and desire for him. And then in verse 3 he says, and by the way, I was very glad. I was really glad. By the way, that, that word very glad, um, it means he was rejoicing. It come, it's, it's the word Cairo, which comes from charis, grace. It means that he was um, very happy, and there was joy, and joy does come from God's grace. Joy is a result of God's grace. Because I was very glad when some brethren came by and testified to your truth. How you are walking in truth. He walked in truth. That's something we, we learn about Gaius, Gaius, however you want to say his name. He was beloved. He walked in truth. He lived according to the truth. It elaborates what the brothers had said about him. His style of life, his walk, his pattern of living, the direction that he was going was consistent with God's truth. He, he lived, he held faithfully to the gospel message that he learned, that he had been taught, which was this, that God is holy, God is perfect, he made us to know him, but we sinned and separated ourselves from him. We became his enemy, but God the Son became man in the person of Jesus Christ. He lived the perfect life. He died on the cross as a substitute for all those who would turn to him in faith. And he arose from the grave victorious over sin and over death. He came back to life. Therefore, we must repent. Therefore, we must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is the gospel message that, that, that Gaius believed that he lived, that he'd been taught. He was consistent in that pursuit of following that. And it came out in his life. In verse 4, John says, I have no greater joy. That means exuberant joy. Gladness of heart. Uh, there is nothing in life that makes me more joyful and more happy than to hear of my children walking in the truth. He uses the word children. It gives prominence to the fact of birth. That, they, that, that Gaius had been born again by the grace of God in Christ. Uh, it, in a post, he could have used the word son, which stresses the dignity and character of relationship, but he calls them children. I, I, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children walking in the truth. Every Christian parent wants to be able to say that and see it. Every pastor uh, has that as the, as the desire of his heart, that those that he teaches and those that he lives life with would walk according to the truth of God's word. They would not go wayward and go away from the faith. And Gaius also, in verse 5, we see this, he acted faithfully. 
He was faithful. He was trustworthy. He was observant of and steadfast of his responsibility and his word and his promises. It's appropriate to point out because it's an act of fidelity to the truth of God. He faithfully did what he did. In verse 5, it says, Beloved, once again, beloved, you are acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they're strangers. Everything you do for other Christians is faithful, even when you, you have no idea who they are, when you've never met them before. I recently read a slogan uh, for a men's ministry, actually, and it said, Grab life by the truth. That's catchy, isn't it? Grab life by the truth. But as I was thinking about it, I thought, you know what? Okay, there's some truth in that. But we need to let the truth grab us. We need to let the truth take hold in our hearts so that it starts motivating our thoughts and our words and our actions. And that love is the result. See, love is the result of truth taking hold in our life. Love. Not knowing all the answers. That's not the result of truth taking hold in our life. Love is the result of truth. Gaius' life was con- controlled by the truth. Jesus, whom he loved, and therefore he loved. We love because he first loved us. So whatever he did, whatever he accomplished, whatever work he did, whatever labor he did for the brethren, for the brothers and the sisters, he did faithfully, and he was kind to strangers. Remember what we, what we saw in Hebrews, in chapter 13 and verse 2. Remember that? Don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for by this some have entertained angels without knowing it. Unaware. Or how about Romans in chapter 12 and verse 13? Don't neglect to show hospitality. Be hospitable to others, even if you don't know them. Gaius was an example of consistent faithfulness. He was trustworthy. You could count on him. He was worthy of being trusted due to his track record. You know people like that. They're the kind of people that you can call any time of the day or the night and they will help you because you can trust them. They won't let you down. They're the kind of people you can confide in and know they won't go tell everybody else about it under the guise of, can you pray for so-and-so? You can trust them. You can confide in them. You can count on them. And John wanted Gaius to continue to express his Christian love by hospitality that supported the truth. What did he say? Beloved, you're acting faithfully in whatever you accomplish for the brethren, especially when they're strangers. They have testified to your love before the church. They have got up in front of church or with the fellowship and said, by the way, this man is a good man. He's faithful. He can be trusted. He's doing good by us. And so what did John say? He said, look, I, you will do well to send them on, your, on their way in a manner worthy of God. That, that phrase, you will do well, Uh, really is a request. Please, please send them on their way in a manner worthy of God. Make adequate provisions for your guests, both while they're with you and at the time of their departure. See, in those days, they traveled from town to town and they needed to have something, a place to stay, and it was dangerous. There weren't hotels. There weren't the Hiltons and the 
holiday inns and all that. And so they had a, had a place to stay so they wouldn't be out in the town square and maybe get robbed or even killed. But then when they left, they were going to travel somewhere else and they need provisions to get them to the next place. There were really strict rules in those days for hospitality. They weren't supposed to ask for money when they came to your house. If they asked or if they stayed too many days, they weren't a, a true prophet. But if Christian workers would come through, you were responsible to help them, to give them lodging, to care for them, to treat them well, but then also to send them on their way with what they needed for the next leg of their journey. Send them out in a manner worthy of God, that those who go out to preach the truth need the support of Christians in the places they go, where they travel. So you will do well. Please do it. Make adequate provision for them. Because they went out, John says, for the sake of the name. The name of Jesus. The name which is above every name. The only name by which we can be saved. The name of Jesus. And it was inappropriate for them to take money from the Gentiles, from those who did not believe the truth. It says, uh, taking nothing, they went out, taking nothing from the Gentiles, accepting nothing from them, and it wouldn't be appropriate to do so anyway. God's people must support God's work. You see, we need to be a receiving church as well as a sending church. This church does really well. I can commend you on that. We send well and we receive well. When people come our way, whether they're coming from across town or across the globe, we receive them with open arms and we are hospitable. We bring them into our homes. We feed them meals. You, you show them a good time. You care for them. You make them feel. When people leave here, they say, you know, I have a lot of places I go, but when I go to Grace, it's home. When I go to Grace, it's family. We've got to continue to do that. To be not only a sending church, but a receiving church. And we will prove ourselves, as we have by a track record here at Grace, we will receive, we will show ourselves to be fellow workers with the truth. So we must continue to do that. So the first example we see here is Gaius, to whom the letter was written. His life was characterized by faithfulness. It brought joy the result was joy. See, that's what it's like when, when someone you know, their life is in line with the truth of God. Uh, consistent living according to the truth of God's word brings joy. It doesn't bring sorrow. And it, in, in, it brings joy in the hearts of like-minded people, people who agree. So that's the first example. Now we have a second example. The second example of consistent living is one of consistently evil deeds. One of a stark contrast to Gaius and its diatrophies. Look at verse 9. John says, I wrote something to the church, but Diotrephes, who loves to be first among them, we're going to go back to that, but loves to be first among them, does not accept what we say. Does not accept. Does not acknowledge what was written. Dismissed the writing as coming from the apostles. He loved to be first. He wanted preeminence. It's the same word used in Colossians chapter 118 for Jesus Christ himself. Where it says that he must come to have first place in everything. That he must come to have the preeminence. Jesus can only be first. But Diotrephes, well, he loved to be first in that, in that local assembly. We don't know if he was an elder in that church. We don't know if he made himself 
first or if he had a position of authority and then he kept pushing and elbowing his way to the front. We don't know exactly, but we know this. He loved to be first and it was evil. It was evil. His name, Diotrephes, means nursling of Zeus, who in that, those days were, was known as the king of the gods, the false gods. But it may indicate some aristocracy that was in his background that he boasted about. Maybe his birth was an aristocratic type of a background or some social connection that he had. But whatever the case, it's fitting because his name is related to the pride and the self-centeredness of this man who wanted to be first. He was the church boss. Church boss. The good thing here at Grace Church that the church boss is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. No one else can take first place. But this man wanted to have first place. In Acts chapter 20, he's spoken of, not by name, but he's the type of person spoken of. He was a savage wolf within the church. What was John going to do about it? Interestingly, John doesn't say, uh, Gaius, you need to take care of this man. You need to take care of what he's doing. You need to face this one head on. Here's what John says. He takes the hit. He says, for this reason, if I come, I will call attention to his deeds. He's going to expose what he does for the false that it is. He says, I'm going to come and call attention to his deeds if I can get there, which he does. And here's what he does. He's guilty of three things. Three things. The first thing is he unjustly accused other people. He was a malicious gossip, as the NIV says. He was gossiping maliciously about the brethren. He was bringing false charges against them with wicked words. Uh, That that term wicked is evil in a moral sense, evil in a spiritual sense. It comes from a noun meaning to labor, to, to make pain, to have sorrow. It's the kind of person that's not content unless he's making pain and trouble for somebody else. Unless he's corrupting other people and drawing them into trouble. Wicked or evil is also attributed to Satan himself. In Matthew 6.13 and Ephesians 6.16, same word. Diatrophies talked nonsense. He said things that were false about other people. You don't want to be in league with diatrophies. You don't want to go around saying false things about people. But see, what happened was his nonsense went beyond mere talk into his actions as well. Because the next thing we see is that he refused to welcome the brothers. As these traveling missionaries or preachers would come through, that they were uh, obligated and responsible to show hospitality to, he refused to. He closed his doors. He was inhospitable. Inhospitable. Actual refusal of help to those in need of help. In great contrast to Gaius, who went out of his way to do what was right towards those who came their way. There was a third thing he did, and, and what he did was he, could, he did all he could do to force his will upon other people. All he could do to control others. He controlled others. So he was a malicious gossip, he was inhospitable, and then he controlled other people. He was the church boss, and he used his self-proclaimed authority, his prominent position, and he forced others to be inhospitable too. 
It went beyond that, though. He forbid people to show hospitality. But then if they did, he would get them thrown out of the church. He practiced illegitimate church discipline. Nothing along the lines of Matthew chapter 18. A lot of churches won't face Matthew chapter 18. And I'm thankful that, that our group of elders at Grace, that, that we have want to follow what God says in the word. But I'll tell you, no one should follow it this way. He didn't follow the scriptures. He did illegitimate church discipline on the, on the brothers. He would throw you out if you wanted to be hospitable. If you wanted to help someone who was coming by, that you were responsible as a brother in Christ or a sister in Christ to help. Obviously, um, Diotrephes didn't walk in the truth. He was not walking in the truth. He was motivated to do evil. And he broke fellowship, threw people out of the church for wrong reasons. Now, I'm sure nobody was asking him to go to lunch after church. He didn't get any invites to the birthday parties. He had a bad reputation due to his words, due to his actions. He was an unsavory character, constantly evil. Now, if you know people like this, you avoid them. You run away from them. You don't entrust yourself to them. You don't confide in them because they're not trustworthy. They'll do you harm. They'll use it against you. See, Diotrephes' behavior was to be avoided, not copied. Look at verse 11. Again, beloved, this term of endearment, beloved, don't imitate what is evil. You know, we're to be imitators of God. Paul even said, imitate me as I imitate Jesus Christ. But John here says, don't imitate what is evil, but what is good. One's conduct clearly reflects one's relationship with God. Does evil means, it doesn't mean committing one single act of sin, like, hey, I really messed up, I did that. It's not that. It's a habit of life. It's one who sins deliberately over and over again as a way of life in contrast with truth as a way of life, with walking in the truth. Instead, they're walking in evil. And it says in, in verse 11 there, the one who does good is of God. The one who does, not, does evil has not seen God. Evil, that's one who's evil in himself and puts others in harm's way because of it. Good is someone who is acting profitably. It's useful. They're beneficial to other people. Doing good as opposed to missing the mark and sinning. To do good so someone is benefited. Doing evil is in a moral sense. Sinful pride is evil. It leads to self-centered life. On the other hand, yielding yourself to Jesus is good and it leads to a God-centered life. So Gaius was consistently good. Diotrephes was consistently evil. One knew Jesus and one didn't. See, he who, he who does good is of God, knows God, knows Jesus. He who does, does evil hasn't seen God. That's John's code word for, he's not born again. He's not saved. He's not a Christian. He's false. Now, there's a third example here. So we got one bad example, one good example. We're hoping for a good one, right? All right, verse 12. The third example is one of consistent living, and it's Demetrius. Demetrius, most likely the messenger of this letter. 
Most likely, one of those traveling missionaries or traveling preachers, that, the kind that, Diot- that Diotrephes loved to turn away. He was an example of consistent good. And unlike Diotrephes, he received a good testimony all around from everybody. Look at verse 12. Demetrius has received a good testimony from everyone and from the truth itself, and we add our testimony, and you know that our testimony is true. You know we tell the truth. You know our track record is good. You know we can be trusted. He received a good testimony. Now, in accordance with the Jewish law of witnesses in Deuteronomy 19, John gives a threefold testimony to the character of Demetrius. He says that his testimony was from everyone, everyone, all the brothers in that locale, from the truth itself, that he in his life went along with the truth, therefore the truth testified to his life. And then also he says we bear witness. John bears witness. It's good. Testified. Good guy. Diotrephes, bad guy. But Demetrius and Gaius are good. So there's three three examples. Now what can we learn from these three examples? There are several things that show us the truth about consistency. And the first is that, that consistency reveals our character. It reveals who we truly are. Now good or evil, the choices that we make show what's really in our hearts. Now, one of my first jobs when I was in college was working at a bank, actually a savings and loan. Remember those? Uh, and uh, I was a teller. They called them tellers back then, you know, customer service representative. And um, that was back in 1981, my, my first, second year of college. And uh, I lost my job there. I lost my job there due to my consistency. I was fired due to being consistent. The problem was my consistency wasn't good. I was consistently late to work. That's not going to help you. I was consistently unprofessional in my, in my interactions. And so I lost my job. And it revealed issues in my character at the time which were not good. I was self-focused. I had a lack of discipline in my life. And I learned some really tough lessons during that time. That's one of the things that God used me to bring me to himself, to, to help me to realize my sinfulness, to help me to realize that I was leading my own life and it was going in a downward spiral. I think it's why I can't stand being late. <laughs> I, uh, I heard someone say, early is on time, on time is late, and late is inexcusable. <laughs> And I can't stand being late anywhere because uh, I think it's because I learned the lesson the hard way. But consistency reveals our character. What we consistently do over and over again truly reveals who we are inside. You can't fake it because there's a track record that, has, that, that can be documented. Now there's something else that consistency does. It it goes right along with the character issue. It determines our reputation. And reputation is a priceless commodity. Reputation follows after you. Sometimes for years. And some people have, have unfair reputations. They've gotten a reputation unfairly and it sticks with them and it's, it's, it's sad, but it, it happens. 
Other people have a good reputation that they got, uh, that people mistook them for something really good, and that sticks with them too. It's, uh, it's interesting. But reputation is something that, that is absolutely crucial in our lives in every realm of life. It doesn't matter if it's your family, doesn't matter if it's your, your, your co-workers, uh, just in your neighborhood or in the church. We all are known for something. We all have a reputation. You hear a person's name and you think, if you know them, you think something of them based upon the track record. Hopefully it's fair. Hopefully it's, you know, I know that many times we, we get our exercise jumping to conclusions about people and think things of them before we ever know anything about them. I've done that so many times. And then you get to know someone and you think, how could I ever have thought those things about them? But reputation is important. In Proverbs 20, verse 11, it says this, Even a child is known by his actions, whether his conduct is good or right. Children, as well as adults, are known by their actions. They are, have a reputation. When I was a kid, I was known as a hyperactive, squirrely kid that wouldn't stop talking. Now, whatever you're consistent in builds your reputation. Good, evil, kindness, patience, what have you. You know, that's why things like, you know, she's impatient, or he's controlling, or wow, they're just really angry. Or, wow, they're kind. Or they'll do anything for you. That's how those statements come about. And again, some reputations are undeserved, both good ones and bad. But reputation is built by consistency nonetheless. There's something else consistency does. It affects our relationships. It doesn't just reveal our character. It doesn't just determine our reputation. But it it affects every relationship we have. With our way of life, our lifestyle, the pattern we show affects our interactions with people. Your family, your friends, your acquaintances. See, we're people of habit. You are probably sitting in the same seat you sit in every, every week here. You probably ha- took the same route here to grace as you usually do. You probably ate the same breakfast that you customarily eat. We're people of habit. It's just the way it is. But we get into ruts. We used to go to Rosarito, Mexico. We helped plant a church down there. And we'd go there three, four, five times a year with our family and a bunch of other families. And, and once you get off the toll road there, uh, you're just going for four or five miles on really, really bad roads. And there are huge potholes and there are huge ruts. And sometimes you just have to ride them out. Stay in that rut till you can get out. There's a sign on, on a rugged Alaskan highway that says this. Choose your rut carefully. You're going to be in it for the next 200 miles. It's hard to break out of ruts of unhealthy patterns of living. You know, my family relationships are are hindered when I am unkind as a pattern, when I am picky or unfair as a way of life, when I get into those ruts and those modes of living. How about your life? It is tough for you uh, to hang out with people who influence you negatively and not get into some rut in that way. You see, 1 Corinthians 15.33 says, Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. And you could tell yourself, I'm going to be a leader. I'm going to make an effect here. But if you are consistently around negative influences and you might be the only voice, you're going to find yourself getting affected. 
Whether it's in the boardroom, whether it's in the classroom, whether it's in the break room, whatever room you go into, you got to be careful. It's tough to break from the pack and do what is right when others are doing what is wrong. And it may mean you lose friends or it may mean you lose something else. But you got to be willing to take a stand for Jesus. you got to be willing to stand for truth. Because your relationships will be affected by the consistent life you live, whatever side of the coin you land. Well, what difference does consistency make? What difference does it make to be consistent? You may say, well, it's not that big a deal. Oh, yeah, it is. Actions speak louder than words. Our consistent actions, good or bad, give us away. They tell on us. Jesus said you're going to be able to tell the, the tree by its fruit. I forgot, but I was going to bring you a banana today. One of my favorite fruits. Try to eat one every morning. High in potassium and all that. But when I open up a banana, and there's a plum in there, <laughs> I'm not going to eat it. Okay, it's false. Something's wrong. I open up a banana, and there's a banana from one end to the other. All the way through. Consistent. To tell the tree by its fruit. Consistent God-pleasing life. If you consistently live in a God-pleasing way, it's going to lead to several things. The first, it might lead to conviction. Conviction. If you're associated with a consistently good example and you're not living in accordance with the Word of God, you're going to be convicted. If you're a believer, you'll be under conviction of the Holy Spirit. There will be, you will know something is not right. You're going to feel it. It's going to be uncomfortable. Conviction. But it can also lead to caution. Caution. If a person is consistently evil, you're going to want to avoid them. But it may lead to confidence. It may lead to confidence that if you and a consistently good example are in alignment, there is confidence in that. That God is at work in you. That he who began a good work in you will complete it till the day of Christ. See, your consistent life in Christ, live humbly and, and honestly, uh, depending on God and not your own resources, will cause others to be either convicted or cautious or confident. The Holy Spirit does the work. He's the one who convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. He's the one who will give you a check in your spirit if things are not right. He's the one who instills confidence in us. This, This letter ends like 2 John ended. He says uh, in verse 13, I had many things to write to you, but I'm not going to write them all down. Only had one piece of papyrus. And, uh, uh, but I hope to see you shortly, and I want to speak to you face to face. And then he says, greet the, friend, the friends by name. The friends greet you and greet the friends by name. Greet means to open up your arms and, and embrace someone, to hug them. He says, greet the friends by name. You can't, Uh, Greet a person by name unless you know their name. I I am so surprised on a weekly basis here at Grace, as great a church as as this is, how many people do not know each other in this body. And you've been going here for a year and a half and and no one knows you and, and, and you don't know anybody. How can that be? You can't greet the friends by name unless you know their names. If you don't know somebody's name today, I just want to ask you to do what I do. Set aside your pride and ask. And if they say, well, I've been here a year and a half, say, well, I'm so sorry that I haven't, I haven't greeted you. If you want to be a friend, if you want friends, uh, you've got to show yourself friendly. 
Now, if you say, I don't want any friends, well, you need an attitude adjustment, you know. (laughs) Uh, But whatever the case, I don't want you to leave here today without meeting someone you don't know their name. I know for a fact that everyone in this room, well, I can't say that for a fact. I bet you everyone in this room doesn't know everybody's name, all right? There could be someone with a photographic memory. I know, I know. But I don't want you to leave today without meeting someone that you, have, you don't know their name. And use their name. And then, and then write it down. I've got to write it down so I remember it. And then use it next week too. And who knows? You may build a, a friend. A friend. But how's a consistent Christian life developed? How do you live a consistent... How do you build something like that? How can you say, I want to get to a point where I'm consistent... That, that people see. See, it's not the thing you really think about. It's just what comes out and then what people notice. But it's built over time, one choice at a time, one acknowledgement of Christ's lordship at a time, one step at a time. You see, you become a Christian and you are instantly a new creature in Christ, a new creation. You have new desires. You have a new identity, a new direction, a new motivation. It's no longer I but Christ. And sometimes old habits instantly are gone. But most of the time, it's a gradual process. We're all in process, and it's a process of sanctification, God uh, conforming us into the image of Christ. You go from death to life, you go from lost to found, you go from blindness to sight, but sometimes old patterns die slow. And we just want to be free. Jesus said the truth will make you free. And you go, why am I not free? What kind of patterns are there? See, you need, you need uh, to learn and do what God says. You need to know His Word. And then let that truth govern your behavior. Let it shape your worldview. See, God is making you more like Jesus if you're a Christian. Your job is to yield to Him. Make decisions under the Lordship of Christ and trust Him to work in you. And you may be sitting here this morning and think that maybe that you or someone you know cannot change. That it's too ingrained that it's too much of a trap, that there's just no way that, that you, can, you can shake loose and you've just resigned yourself to live like that for the rest of your life. I'm here to tell you that's not the truth. That's not the truth. Maybe you're stuck in the rut of living a consistently bad example. Or maybe on the other hand, you may think that all is well and that you are so consistent and everyone shows you and tells you, well, take heed lest you fall. Let him who stands take heed lest you fall. We all need Jesus every day. We're all dependent on God for life and breath and everything in life. Nothing we do makes us good. Only God is good. When we're in Christ, it's only because of Christ. By His doing, you are in Christ Jesus. If we grow in Christ, it's by His doing. He's at work in us to will and do His good pleasure. But we also need to agree to it. We also need to yield to that truth. Yield to His working, not resisting the Holy Spirit, not fighting against Him. Working together with him. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. And you could grab life by the truth and do all that if you want. It's not a bad idea. But, but the better idea is letting truth grab hold of you. See, the truth is this. People can change because God changes people.